So on the Reformation, because it is October, and, and because uh, it is a good time for us as Christians to remember this, let me just put on my professor's hat just for a moment and take you back to 1515 in Europe, particularly in France. In 1515, Francis became the king of France. Now, any children present might think that that's a very appropriate name for king of France, Francis. Well, that's true. He had an older sister named Marguerite that he adored. She was married to Charles. And even before the Reformation began more largely in Europe, Marguerite had heard and believed a French preacher, Jacques Lefebvre de Tapes, when he had preached that one is forgiven for their sins by God, not by the church, but by Christ alone. Only through faith in Christ. So when her brother Francis became king, Marguerite's enemies multiplied. Her immediate support of Protestants brought her suspicion and opposition. It caused many of her requests to her brother to be denied. But she was so taken with this news about Jesus Christ that she had heard and believed that she could not be put off by threats from the church or disappointments at court when her brother would refuse her requests. Marguerite became convinced that the Roman Catholic Church itself did not have the power to forgive sins, but that only Jesus Christ could do that. Certainly the forgiveness of sins is at the very heart of the Reformation. It's at the very heart of what we celebrate, especially this month. And it has that central position because this is at the very heart of Christianity. Do you ever talk to non-Christian friends about the gospel? I've got a Jewish friend right now that I'm talking to back in the States. I'm praying for him every day. And I'm trying to help him see that he mainly needs not power to live a better moral life, which he wants, and which he sees among his Christian friends, but that there is a God whose sins he has offend, whose sins have offended, and that he needs peace with this God, that the most fundamental reality is his relationship with God. Is God at peace with him or not? Friends, that's what we want to understand as Christians because many religions are therapeutic in nature. They just try to make you feel better or more fortunate or richer. They claim to help you change and improve. But others teach us to submit and conform. Atheistic secularism promises us an improved experience of pleasure in this life till we die. But Christianity is a more forensic religion. It teaches us that we have a greater problem than just ourselves that needs to be fixed. That even apart from our experience of today, that our own yesterdays, not to even mention the solidarity we have with Adam and his rebellion against God, have left us in debt to God, in arrears with God. We owe the house. Our sins matter. Even if we commit no more sins the rest of our life, the sins we've already committed matter to an eternal God. They offend him. He hates them. 
He hates all that is wrong and that do wrong. The God of the Bible is uncompromising. To use the language of the New Testament, the wrath of God remains upon the one who does not obey the Son. That's John chapter 3. In Romans 1.18, Paul writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Friends, how could such people, anyone, be forgiven for their sins? This is the uniquely pressing question that Christianity says is before every man, woman, and child on the planet. It was in Marguerite's own life. And it was also in the ministry of Jesus. If you open your Bible to Matthew's Gospel, we heard earlier Esther read to us from the Sermon on the Mount. That's the first major sermon of Jesus recorded in Matthew's Gospel, chapters 5 to 7. Since then, Jesus went around and performed miracles as signs of who he was, what he came to do. In chapter 8, if you turn to chapter 8, you just glance over that, you see he cleansed the leper, he healed the centurion's daughter, he calmed the storm, he drove out demons. And then you turn to Matthew chapter 9, and we begin to come and see come into focus what really will be a unique vein in Jesus' teaching about himself, his authority, his mission, that will continue to be developed in Matthew's gospel until we see him killed. We see his trademark compassion, the beginning of his committed religious opponents, or the response of the ever-present crowds. So look with me at Matthew chapter 9, beginning at verse 1. Matthew chapter 9, beginning at verse 1. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowds saw it, they were afraid. And they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Friends, even in this short passage, uh, there is much more than we have time to consider this morning. But let me just draw to your attention three things. And this will be my outline for my remarks. Number one, Jesus' response to the needy. 
Number two, Jesus' response to the religiously self-confident. Number three, the crowd's response to Jesus. And because I see some of you are taking notes, let me repeat those. Number one, Jesus' response to the needy. Number two, Jesus' response to the religiously self-confident. And number three, the crowd's response to Jesus. I pray that each one of them will help you see more clearly exactly who Jesus is. First, Jesus blesses the needy. We see this in verse 2. Look again at verse 2. And then at what Jesus says down in verse 6. And, and what happens in verse 7. Verse 2. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And then down to the end of verse 6. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Drum roll, please. What would happen when he says that? Verse 7. And he rose and went home. What always strikes people about this story was that it was not the paralytic's faith that Jesus saw in verse 2, but it says their, their faith, the faith of his friends that brought the paralytic to Jesus, their faith. If you read the account of this same incident in Mark and Luke, by their recounting uh, that the way the friends did this was by making a hole in the roof above Jesus and letting their paralyzed friend down on a mat in front of Jesus. What exactly these friends thought about Jesus isn't clear, but they clearly had faith in Jesus as someone who could and would help their friend. So in that sense, they had the rudiments of understanding the great good news that Jesus had come as their savior. And still today, friends bring those we love to Jesus, don't we? and our prayers, and our loving acts, and our inviting them to church, and our sharing the gospel with them. Friends, bring others to Jesus. If we are here with Jesus this morning, it's at least in part because others worked to bring us here. Maybe it was simply Matthew writing this gospel down. Or a preacher like me telling you about it. Maybe it was a friend who one day shared with you about Jesus. Or perhaps it was your own father or your own mother. Whoever it was, if we're with Jesus today, it's because others have been used of God to help to bring us here. And after we're converted, we continue to serve and be served by each other, don't we? Still today in church, we Commit to each other to bear each other's burdens in love. In these friends, there is so much to admire and appreciate and anticipate and emulate. But we don't want to misunderstand them here. Friends, you realize that the great gospel that we always celebrate on Sundays, and doubly so when we get around the Reformation remembering it, is not that our faith is 
has merit that persuades God to forgive us. That's not what we believe. We don't believe that our faith is so good that our faith earns God's forgiveness. God doesn't substitute our faith for our sin and so save us that way. God's forgiveness is not now and was not then earned by faith, either this man's or his friend's. It is Christ who has the right to forgive in virtue of the substitution that he would make of himself for us in our place to bear God's wrath that we have deserved. All right, then why note their faith here? These friends' faith in Jesus didn't obligate Jesus to do anything, but it made this a good occasion for Jesus to display what he had come with authority to do, to forgive and heal. You understand forgiveness? It isn't simply forgetting, is it? Often, in fact, it's quite deliberately remembering some incident. That's why it's so often painful. But it's making the deliberate decision not to hold such a person in the regard their offense merits. Not to view them in that light. So with us, God doesn't literally forget our sins in the sense of lose his omniscience. He forgets them in the sense of disregarding them, not looking upon them, not seeing us in the light of them, because if we're his, Christ has fully borne the penalty of our sins. There's nothing left over for us to bear before the Lord. Here in our passage, we see the kindness and the tenderness of Jesus' heart as he looks at this paralyzed young man and says, take heart, child or son. Friends, Jesus is compassion embodied. And then your sins are forgiven. Jesus was authoritatively saying in the case of a specific individual, as if forgiveness was somehow in his gift. Later, Jesus would explain more of how he would be involved in this. When in Matthew 16, Peter confesses him as the Messiah, and then on in the Last Supper, he would tell his disciples, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. That is how our sins would be forgiven. So again, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, let me just speak on behalf of this congregation. We're delighted for you to be here. Uh, welcome. Please come every Sunday. Know that you're welcome here. Uh, you're in a great room in, in Singapore to hear about Jesus Christ. Please understand that there is a God and that this God has made you in his image. You have been made specifically to live this life in loving and serving this God. And you have completely and utterly failed at that. I know that not because I know you personally, but because I know the Bible teaches that all of us have. We've all sinned against God. That's what the Bible calls it. We've done things that are wrong. We've done what we've wanted rather than what God wants. And because God is unerringly good, he will condemn all of us forever. And that's the problem. 
that Christianity says we all have. That's what the Bible teaches. Because God is good and we are not, we are in trouble. A trouble of our own making. But in his amazing love for us, he sent his only son to live a life of perfect trust in his heavenly father. To never do what is wrong. To always do what is right. And then he laid down his life on the cross, bearing God's wrath, taking, paying God's wrath on the place, in the place of each of us, all of us who would ever turn from our sins and trust in him. God raised him from the dead. He ascended to heaven. He presented his sacrifice to his heavenly father and it was accepted. And he calls all of us now to turn from our sins and to trust in him. Friends, this is good news. You, can, you may have walked in here today guilty of your sins before God. And you can walk out of this very meeting forgiven by God forever of your sins. Not because of what you have done, but fundamentally because of what Christ has done. That's the good news that you want to listen and understand in the hymns that are sung here, in the prayers that are prayed, whether it's a prayer of praise or like Brian's prayer of confession. And all of those things, you hear this idea of our sin and God's work in Christ. This is what it means. So if you want to understand more about this in your own life, talk to one of the pastors or elders here. Talk to the friend who brought you. We talked today about forgiving ourselves as if that's the big hurdle we need to get over. But the truth is, God is the one who has more right to be offended by our sins than we ourselves could ever have. We have accrued not simply disappointments before ourselves or shame before others, but genuine guilt and culpability before God. Jesus here would give a preview of the heart of his ministry in a flash. He would forgive this man's sins in a way that the man himself had done nothing to merit. He was simply lying on a mat and his friends brought him. That's it. He was showing that this forgiveness would be all of grace. What a reason to rejoice in the forgiveness of our sins. As we sing in the hymn, our sins not in part but the whole have been nailed to the cross and I bear them no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh my soul. As Jesus would later say to his disciples, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. My Christian brother and sister, I'm not sure whatever other bad news you may have had this past week, but none of it amounts up to the height and the depth and the breadth and the extent and the mass of this amazingly good news. This is why we gather as we do at the beginning of every week to celebrate your sins against God have all been forgiven in Christ. Praise the Lord. And then down in verse six, we see what amounted to the proof of this forgiveness. Jesus heals the man by command. As soon as the man is told to rise and go home, he gets up and goes home. This suggests that in the same way, Jesus effected this. He made it real simply by speaking it. Surely over these last few days, the words of God through the ancient prophet Isaiah were ringing in people's ears. Isaiah 35. 
verses 1 to 6. As Jesus had been teaching among them, the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands. Make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer. Jesus had been literally fulfilling those prophecies. People had been seeing it with their eyes in a way that they had never seen anyone do. But even the people there that day who knew Scripture best didn't seem to be responding that way. Which brings us to Jesus' response to some others who were there that day. Number two, Jesus' rebuke. He rebukes the religiously self-confident. That's the second thing I want us to notice. Look again at verse 3. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So these scribes were the religious teachers of the day who spent their lives studying and teaching the Scriptures. They were the ones sitting here watching. And we might guess that they would be most prepared to really understand and accept and even rejoice in what Jesus was doing and who that told them Jesus was. Psalm 103, verse 20 says, The Lord would come and set free those who were doomed to die. That's exactly what Jesus had come to do and was beginning to do by these miracles since the Sermon on the Mount and especially by this forgiving the man's sins here. These scribes clearly understood Jesus not to be simply announcing God's forgiveness, but actually effecting it. You understand what they were witnessing here. If sin is an offense against God, and Jesus was claiming to forgive this offense, well, he could no more forgive sins against God if God was someone else, then I could forgive sins you committed against Eugene. I have no right to, in Eugene's name, look at Brian and say, Brian, I forgive whatever terrible thing you did toward Eugene. I, I, I can't do that. I'm not Eugene. I don't have that authority. So when Jesus forgave sins, every scribe there realized he was claiming to be the one who had been offended by the commission of the sin. And that is supremely God himself. God alone has the right to finally and fully forgive sins. And these theologians understood that. These scribes clearly understood Jesus 
not to be simply announcing God's forgiveness, but actually affecting it then. Jesus knew that only God could forgive sins. That's why he said to the young man, son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus seems to have full authority to announce this, almost as if to decide this, almost as if to do this. And this is what unnerved those teachers of the law. Sin is at root against God alone, as David prays in Psalm 51. And forgiving sin is something that therefore only God can do. So they were right to say Jesus' claim was essentially one of being made, making himself equal with God here. They were right. But they were wrong not to recognize who Jesus was. They were wrong not to recognize that Jesus actually had that right. Do you see this? You really want to see this if you want to understand this passage. This is a little snap. This is a little pop you have to understand. These scribes were nearly right in their concern about blasphemy. Their conclusion in verse 3 would have been right had anybody else said this. Psalm 103.3 refers to the Lord as the one who forgives all your iniquity. Jesus, by forgiving sin, was clearly putting himself on an equal footing with God. So you could see why these scribes might have thought that Jesus was blaspheming. That same charge would, of course, be the charge that Jesus would eventually be killed for. You can see that later in Matthew chapter 26. But as it was, these scribes were so wrong about who God is that they were the ones blaspheming God the Son incarnate before them fulfilling scripture after scripture as he had caused, if you look back in chapter 7 and 8, the, the blind to see, the deaf to hear, and now before them the lame to walk. He was literally fulfilling the scriptures they taught in front of their eyes, and they didn't believe him. What's worse than being wrong is being religious and being wrong. That's why we gather each Sunday morning as we do. And one thing we do together when we come as Christians is to confess our sins. Because if we have no sins, we have no need of a Savior. So Christianity is not a good religion for you if you are perfect. We have nothing to offer you whatsoever. Our religion is only for sinners. We only have something to offer if you have messed up, sinned fouled up your own life, done that which is wrong. We come together then every Sunday to confess our sins before God. Our religion is not a reinforcing religion, as others may be. We actually believe that we not only sinned in the past, but that we continue to sin, and therefore we try to give thought to how we can confess our sins before God and each other. Being able to see and understand our sins is really a normal part of repenting of our sins. And that's one of the purposes of expositional sermons like this one I'm preaching right now. To try to bring God's word to light, to then bring our own hearts to light. So that we'll see and understand even ourselves as we are better instructed by the word and corrected by it. I'm thankful for how many of you have opportunities throughout the week, every week, to show others what it's like to follow Christ, to be saved by Christ. I pray that God would provide each one of you this week with an opportunity 
for humility in your job, in your family, so that others can know more of the gospel and know more of this witness of this local church to it. We don't know that these scribes said what they thought out loud. But however he did it, Jesus knew that they were thinking this. Praise God for Jesus' knowledge and wisdom. Anyway, there in verse 4, Jesus openly confronted them about it. The question he put to them in verse 5, of which is easier to say, is not immediately obvious to us. I assume the answer was to say, your sins are forgiven, because nobody could tell if that had really happened. Whereas if he said, rise and walk, it would be immediately obvious if he had had that kind of power and authority. And then he shows them his ability to do even this harder one, rise and walk, as he turns in verse 6 to heal the paralyzed person by command, thus proving that he was, in fact, no blasphemer, but he was the one sent by God as the Savior of his people. So this healing is more visible proof that Jesus could do what only God could do, heal a paralytic. So though Jesus certainly does not always give physical healing in cases where we're spiritually forgiven, the healing of this paralytic was to show that Jesus had authority great enough even to forgive sins. Notice how Jesus concludes this brief reasoning there by saying in verse 6, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then he interrupts his sentence and he concludes his argument with the act of healing the lame man. So Jesus' actions really finish the sentence there in verse 6. Jesus is presenting himself as the Son of Man and he is asserting a particular authority that the Son of Man has on earth to forgive sins. He is explaining to these scribes, Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where this figure called the Son of Man is presented, quote, dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and language should serve him. This human figure in Daniel's vision was accorded divine privilege. What does that mean? You see, Daniel is getting a vision from God of the incarnation. He would be given all the authority he would need to perform his task. What could this mean? It was a foreshadowing of the incarnation, which these scribes had just been literally witnessing before them. Friends, the more you understand the Gospels, the more you will understand how guilty these scribes are. Prophecies that they had spent their entire life studying were visibly being fulfilled in front of them. And they were blind to them. In some ways, chapter 9, verse 3, is the headwaters of the cross. These teachers of God's word who should have of all people recognized the Messiah coming as the suffering servant of Isaiah to save sinners. Instead, Reason correctly here in verse 3 that only God can forgive sins, but they precisely and tragically misunderstand who Jesus is. But the truth was that Jesus had power to heal and authority to declare forgiveness. 
And besides, who was there other than Jesus who really did understand the difficulty and the cost that would be involved in forgiving sin? Oh, friends, knowing what Jesus was planning to do, the sacrifice of himself he was planning to make, to hear others who would never make such a sacrifice, challenge him about not having the authority to forgive sins when he alone could and would pay the price. Friends, the humiliation of Christ unfolds before us more and more as we stare at and consider the text of Scripture. These scribes spoke of abstract theology where Jesus knew his plans that would involve the breaking of his own body and the shedding of his own blood. And so Jesus began to explain there in verse 6 and then completed it by simply healing the lame man. Imagine the drama there in verse 6 when Jesus boldly commanded the lame man. They were all waiting, the man himself, the friends, the scribes, the crowds. What would happen? Would the man rise? Because Jesus' power to heal would be their best indicator of the truth of the reality of Jesus' power to save. And Jesus speaks, and the man gets up and goes home. And that brings us to our third thing to notice in this brief account. The crowd's response to Jesus. We're not told how these scribes in particular responded, but Matthew does give us a wider report in verse 8 when he says, when the crowd saw it, they were afraid. They had dread. They marveled. They were awestruck. And we read, they glorified God who had given such authority to men. So there are these two basic parts to the people's response. First, we read that they were afraid. And this wasn't a bad response. You know, we read in Proverbs 1 that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And then second, we read that they glorified God who had given such authority to men. That's referring to Jesus as son of man, as he's called himself. It's what the son of man title is back in Daniel 7. Jesus had mentioned this title in verse 6. So the plural to men there is simply a reference to Jesus, that is, to this category of, of being. You know, the one who has this authority being a man and among men. This authority now wasn't only up in heaven, where they always knew it was, but this authority had come very near, very near. One who had this authority was among them. This wasn't glorifying God, I think, in the sense that we might use the word often today. Sing, singing his praises as we've done already. There's nothing casually happy about this. Rather, they were speaking of God's power. It's striking, really, that they weren't simply happy over this remarkable healing. Yay, he can walk again. That's wonderful. But somehow that healing had left them more struck with the one who had done the healing than with the healing itself. 
That tells you something of what was going on there that day. The crowds understood that, yeah, the guy being able to get up and walk home is, is remarkable, no doubt about it. But that you could just forgive his sins and then tell him to do this. That's the abiding thing that gets the attention of the crowds. They're not staring at the guy walking home. One or two steps and they got that. They're looking over at Jesus. They're thinking, who is this man? This wasn't what they normally experienced. We read they were afraid. Much like the disciples had been during the storm on the sea in chapter 8, or like the Gadarenes just before in chapter 8, seemed to have been when Jesus had cast out the demons. Between the leper being cleansed, we read of up in chapter 8, and now this paralytic in chapter 9 being healed, it's no surprise that Jesus' honor and reputation spread. Friends, Jesus' reputation spreads today even from meetings like this one, where we come together and we remember and we consider and we understand as we are filled with God's Spirit and we are awed at His conviction and at the forgiveness of sins He offers. So we regularly confess our sins and assure ourselves from God's Word at the forgiveness He promises us in Christ. That's our response as we peer over this crowd to witness through Matthew's words Jesus' saving work that day. By forgiving sins as he had that day, Jesus was teaching everyone about himself. He was teaching this paralyzed man about him. He was teaching the man's friends about him. Jesus was teaching the scribes about him. Jesus was teaching these crowds about him. Jesus is teaching us about him. Jesus is even teaching you about him. And as I think of this good news spreading, I think of that person that I introduced you to at the beginning of the message, Marguerite. Marguerite glorified God with the authority he providentially gave her. She faced many trials. Her husband of 16 years, Charles, died in 1525 when she was only 33 years old. She was soon married again, this time to Henry, King of Navarre, a region on the border of Spain and France, which was in dispute between them. Repeatedly, Marguerite would risk her brother King Francis's disfavor by requests she would make for Protestants who believed and taught and pleaded that our sins are forgiven, not through the sacraments of the church, but through our faith in Jesus Christ, in his life and death and resurrection for us. Marguerite led many fellow nobles to Christ. John Calvin dedicated his first edition of the Institutes to the young King Francis, hoping to persuade him, Marguerite's brother. But it didn't. Instead, Francis banned Protestant books from France. 
despite her pleas. Still, Marguerite went on. She poured out her own expression of faith in Christ in poetry. She actually published a long devotional poem on Psalm 51.10. Create in me a clean heart, O God. You can find it on the internet and read it this afternoon. It was called The Mirror of the Sinful Soul. You can write that down. The Mirror of the Sinful Soul. The sisters, your sister in Christ. Church officials were offended at the book because it did not teach purgatory or indulgences or the intercession of saints. It taught that sins are forgiven through faith in Christ. Marguerite became the central objects of plots against the Protestants. The earlier days of gospel advance she had seen in the 15-teens, in the 1520s, when France was becoming a Protestant country. Increasing numbers of people, increasing people who were in authority, were coming to hear and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were replaced by her using her influence to protect them now that times were turning and these evangelicals were being persecuted and even killed if it were not for her intercession. Again and again, Marguerite's hand would protect a Protestant from her brother's hateful plans. The story is told of one young man who was studying in Paris and who was arrested and imprisoned for having become a Protestant. Three days later, in utter isolation in a dark, damp prison, his cell door simply opened. The young man guessed that this was Queen Marguerite's doing. Though he was still in his clothes that had been ripped and torn by the crowds when he was arrested three days earlier, when he was rejected by his friends who were scared to be associated with him, the ragged student went to the palace. He'd visited there in earlier days as the queen's guest. Now he sent in a note to his only hope. But as kind as and fearless as Marguerite was, would this request be too directly in the face of the authorities, right under their noses, at the palace itself? Could she do anything for this young man, even quietly? What happened? Well, the truth is, Queen Marguerite was delighted to hear of his release. She ordered him to be brought into his presence, her presence immediately. As one writer recorded it, when he reached her elegant drawing room, he found her surrounded by splendidly dressed nobility. But that did not seem to matter to Marguerite. As soon as she saw him, she hurried to meet him, introduced him to her company as though he were a distinguished gentleman, and sent him to a guest room where he was cleansed and clothed and fed. Friends, you can imagine how a queen like that stirred up opponents. They mocked her publicly. She left Paris and went down to the south, to Navarre, where the gospel was unknown. And there she used her influence for the Lord. She sponsored gospel preachers. She encouraged illegal gospel meetings. She often had Gerard Roussel, an old friend of John Calvin's, preach. Once her husband, Henry, the king of Navarre, became so angry with her that he broke into her room shouting and struck her on the face. But even this terrible sin was used for gospel purposes. 
Marguerite got word of this to her brother, King Francis of France. Francis was furious that Henry would strike his sister, and he threatened to invade. Henry, therefore, was terrified and begged his wife Marguerite's forgiveness. She granted it only upon the promise that he would allow Protestants to freely meet and that he himself would study the truth about forgiveness of our sins only through faith in Christ. Henry kept both his promises. And that was what God used to convert Henry of Navarre, to make Henry a genuine Christian, and to make the southwest of France a safe place for the Protestants. In fact, over the next several decades, the burgeoning Protestant movement up to 10% of the French population by 1570, when it was counterattacked and fiercely and violently to the point of near extinction, where did they go for protection? To the southwest of France, to the little kingdom of Navarre. Amazing, isn't it? How points of need, like a threatened army or a paralyzed man or something difficult in your own life can become moments of instruction and change. Those religious teachers of Capernaum in Jesus' day wouldn't have thought anything about that man lying there paralyzed. They saw things like that all the time. They wouldn't have thought anything about that paralyzed man before Jesus spoke to him. But once Jesus spoke to him, that paralyzed man, his paralysis becomes a stage, a theater for the glory of God revealing the Savior of the world. They wouldn't have guessed that through that man would come literally the most important theological lesson they would ever be taught. That Jesus has authority to forgive our sins. It's surprising what great life-changing, eternity-altering lessons we can learn from such small things. May God give us eyes to see, and ears to hear. Let's pray.